Hey all, welcome to one of the best roundtable discussions we ever recorded, hosted by Incremental and Singular. Our industry is experiencing massive changes, and we asked Janie Perasini from EA Games and Alex Weinstein, who used to lead marketing at Grubhub, to join us and talk about these tectonic shifts. We spoke about the opt-in rates for ATT, the profile of a marketer in this new world, implications to performance marketing, what you can do to prepare, and our predictions about if and when Google will take a similar move. We hope you'll enjoy listening to this roundtable. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to our roundtable. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about marketing like a marketer, the impact and opportunity of IDFA deprecation. And uh, let's do ladies first to introduce ourselves. Uh, hi, I'm Jamie Parasini. Uh, I head up mobile growth and marketing at uh, EA Electronic Arts. Uh, my team manages all of our mobile titles globally and new user acquisition and existing uh, user growth. Awesome. Uh, great to meet you, Jane, and thank you for having me. I am Alex. In my last role, I ran the marketing group for Grubhub, uh, which is the leader in the food delivery space in the United States. Um, I have actually left the company a couple of months back, so you can hear all sorts of unfiltered things from me now. <laughs> awesome. Um, I'm Gadi. I'm uh, one of the founders and CEO of uh, Singular. Um, and uh, I'm sure a lot of folks know about us. Um, we help marketers uh, with attribution and analytics, and you're excited to be here and talk about uh, this topic. It's very close to heart. Been talking about IDFA deprecation for I don't know how long, and kind of sick of the word, but uh, but gonna enjoy this uh, for sure. Thank you. Cool. And I'm Maor Sadra. I'm a co-founder and CEO for Incremental. Uh, we're an incrementality measurement platform. We just launched. Last year, uh, I've been in the ed tech industry for roughly 20 years. Uh, fuck, it's been long. Oh, and by the way, we are an explicit round table, so feel free. Um, and yeah, very excited to talk to you all uh, about this topic. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned it, Gary. I think, you know, uh, like developers put up a merchandise website. I hate um, iOS 14.5 uh, because people have been talking about it for so long. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so we prepared a couple of questions. We didn't rehearse anything, so we're just going to keep it relatively free flow. First one we came up with is why IDFA deprecation must lead to a change in performance marketing. What are the changes? What are the limitations? And what current tactics become obsolete? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I'll go. I'll start. I'll start. Um, I think uh, there's, it depends on what side of the coin you're on. Like for there's ad monetization issues uh, for people that are that have that, and then there's also user acquisition issues, and they're a little different. I would say admon is that we're seeing, you know, decrease CPMs. Uh, at least that's what's been forecasted. EA doesn't have much of an ad monetization arm, but uh, from my friends and family out there, they've they've told me as much. So that's a, that's a completely different issue than like solving for measurement, where it's not like the market's changing necessarily, or like your brand is changing. It's just the measurability conundrum is the issue. And I think that that's um, where it's been interesting, where uh, as an advertiser, you know, there were theories that more people are going to be spending on Android and they're not, not in, we haven't seen a massive change over to Android. Now, 
the importance of testing creative and things like that on Android. Yeah, but I don't think that that's showing in the macro view and, and, and you know, economics because it's not like millions and millions of dollars shifting over there, but uh, definitely like, strategies are changing and focusing on Android. Um, I also think there's a different dynamic at the moment that we're dealing with, with partners like DSPs, more programmatic partners where uh, the decision engine is now being housed within our, our group and our company rather than uh, it being determined within a DSP. So that's kind of changing the, you know, just the, um, our identity as, as a marketing group, uh, but also how do we build a decision engine and absorb more data? And we have to do a lot of the legwork that used to be kind of done in the ad tech ecosystem uh, for us, which was quite a luxury. So those are kinds of, those are like the most recent things that uh, we've been dealing with and tackling. Totally similar story over here, except that I've always been quite cynical on the topic of trusting anybody in the ecosystem with any of the numbers, because I'm a big believer that the incentives are massively misaligned. Uh, so I, I, I hear of uh, a lot of colleagues in the industry going exactly through, 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 through this flow, right, where they have to do things by themselves. Uh, and, 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 and it's quite, quite difficult. Um, I tend to be of the view that um, you gotta do all the incrementality studies yourself and you cannot trust any of the participants, most definitely not the platforms or not the people who are doing the buying for you because all of them are making money from you buying from them. So don't trust any of the numbers, um, whether they're restricted by recent, recent changes or even before then. Uh, I, I tend not to uh, not to trust them. So, with that cynical point of view, I actually uh, find that uh, companies like like Grubhub that are that are uh, maybe a little bit more um, uh, kind of, kind of care, careful with the measurement and trust for the ecosystem, lack thereof, I'd say, um, are faring maybe a little bit better. I mean, I could I could I could share from my view that you know that I think ID fit deprecation is sort of a um, Maybe even the wrong title, because really, what what I think what's happening here is 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 it's much broader than that, right? I mean, Apple with ATT has has now broadened the definition to all sorts of tracking, and we've seen the trends happening, uh, you know, in, in the web with third-party cookies, and so there's a clear shift, I guess, of privacy that's just eliminating a certain set of technologies and and uh, and solutions we had before. So I think the changes are massive, and. Yeah, I'm curious, like certain use cases, like, you know, retargeting, for example, what, how does that look like in, in the new world and stuff like that? Um, in the limitations, we talked about it endlessly, but, you know, no user level data and kind of stuck with SKA network for some limitations, et cetera. Um, it's hard to tell what taxes will become obsolete because I'm still waiting to see, um, there's a few things that I'm, I'm, I'm looking to see. One is where does the consent ends up being? And, and, and second, even if it's going to be low and probably it's not going to be very high, how will companies learn how to leverage the data set that they do get consent on to apply to the rest? I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, exercise. So, I, you know, I still think if you can get consent, it's important because it will be leveraged to do other uh, things like better modeling, et cetera. Well, what's your take on the, on the selection bias there, right? Like how much, how much do you think you'll be able to infer? Oh, no, it's, it's a great question. And actually, I mean, I'd love to hear if there's any insights. I mean, one of the topics that w I, I was curious to get numbers on, and actually I think Singular has has the data, we need to check it, but it's like, are the people that trust your brand and maybe do in-app purchases, are they more, more likely to to give you the opt-in? And also, you know, I, I got to give Mebo credit for that, where he said, like, what if we just show the pop-up to people that are paying us? Maybe they're the ones we want to measure anyway, because they're the whales. And maybe they trust us. If they give us money, they trust us with opt-in, right? But it's it's a theory. I don't know. Yeah. I'm curious, Janie, if you've seen First that. First of all, I, 
I love Nebo. I miss him dearly. Um, uh, not like he's dead. I just haven't worked with him for <laughs> so many years. Nebo, come back to me. Uh, but without giving away too much, uh, I, from what I've been able to compare notes with other people in the industry, brand brand value is important. Um, at EA, we have significant brands like Madden, FIFA, Sims, you know, Plants for Zombies. Uh, so I'm noticing that our numbers are a lot better than uh, than um, game comes out there that don't have um, strong brand or maybe it's uh, uh, not licensed IP. Uh, you know, so there's something of value, I think, now to licensed IP that before a, a lot of times uh, developers were like, it's too expensive, you know, that kind of thing. Um, also digging, I mean, we still got to dig into a lot of the data, but we are we are internally having conversations about like, is there opt-in bias for our elder users, uh, elder cohorts that have been with our games for, you know, three, four, six, you know, kind of significant years uh, are most of the opt-outs from new user cohorts. So we still have to dig in there. And then also like demographic uh, because we, we um, you know, there's access to it or to either infer uh, age or um, with age gating tools that we have, you know, we identify to their ages. And so I think that there's some interesting data that we could probably glean um, at EA too about like, do so, older players uh, trust, you know, or is it, are they more privacy sensitive, sensitive than younger? And um, there's those questions. Um, I mean, I've even heard, sorry, last last thing, before I just take up the whole conversation, I've even heard of some uh, game companies that are changing their Fatui flow so that they get uh, conversion value signals quicker. Uh, mm. So I think that there might be some impact too about like how quickly uh, and aggressive they are with monetization. Um, you know, I can't speak to our product team, but uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some of that some of those types of tests uh, where they try to monetize quicker than, than they typically do um, because of conversion value stuff. So, so there is a reason why uh, when we came up with this uh, roundtable, we named it market like a marketer. And uh, like in my view, like what this change kind of forces on the industry is marketing mm -hmm. like a marketer. And when you think of um, like old school marketing, well, we didn't have data. We didn't have um, the ability to actually understand on a, on a click basis or an impression basis, who was the last to touch a user. And the methods of uh, testing was a uh, testing, like testing pretty much everything, stopping to advertising, trying different mediums, different medias and so on. And I think this is kind of like one of the biggest changes that are happening on the macro level. Now, I, I also do think that like the fact that some users will opt in will allow, it will be another data point. Like everything is a data point and I do see it. I do see it now, you know, with more um, basically CMOs I'm speaking with who either come from an offline background or agency background or brand background. They're actually a bit more comfortable in this current new situation. Uh, on the other hand, I think that fraudsters basically now have new opportunities. Um, so any change in the industry uh, creates opportunities for those who look to monetize on that. And yeah, I think it'll be uh, probably a couple of months until we stumble across the new type of fraud uh, that is happening out there. I think it's, it going, it's going to be like an opt-in fraud, means uh, fraudsters taking the opt-in rates. Uh, and it's really hard to actually validate them because it's not like Apple is uh, known for their measurement tools. You're, you're aging me. I've been in, I was in, you know, I started before, I started before any app store in mobile marketing. 
So, uh, yeah, and also, you know, before the days of singular MMPs, so I'm comfortable in this environment. 2001, Jamie. <laughs> I'm not far behind, 2003, so not far behind you. No, I just want to say that one of the things that um, um, you know, makes me thinking is, um, it feels like Apple, and I'm trying to think of a good analogy, is like they, they, they forced everybody to, to be in this room, and it's a pretty tight room, but they control the walls of the room. And we don't know, but suddenly, unexpectedly, like a wall moves, and suddenly there's a bit more space. And what it means is that, you know, you got scan 1.0, and it's a piece of shit, but then you get scan 2.0, and it's slightly better. And then 2.1, 2.2, suddenly you have 3.0. It's like, okay, you sent multiple postbacks? Like, you didn't have that a minute ago. And it's almost like it's an, this unpredictable roadmap that, you know, it's full with hopefully good things and not, you know, I believe they started more restricted and they'll release some restrictions. And so a lot of our predictions, it's just hard to predict because you don't know what features they'll give you that may still be privacy safe, but could enable certain use cases as well. So, you know, I feel like everybody's kind of fully controlled by them and, you know, it's kind of obvious, but it's just insane how, you know, every small changes in a version they do suddenly makes a ton of people happy or, or, or going crazy. It's just nuts. So I, I spoke with Alison from Ad Exchanger like three weeks ago before the launch, and she asked me if there's a chance there's a chance Apple will not publish it. And basically said like, who knows? Apple is basically like the Israeli Mossad; they don't really give any information before doing anything. And in a way, we should be grateful that we got some information. Now, uh, when 3.0 SKA Network 3.0 was launched. I basically saw marketers thinking, yay, we could do multi-touch. And I'm like, no, this is like basically self-attribution all over again. This is like discrepancy forever. Um, and it is really weird how Apple makes their decision, but it's like we have no control. We just uh, stick to whatever the platforms do. And that's, I would say, the, uh, the challenge with um, any business that rides on someone else's platform. The funniest yeah. moment for me was uh, noticing that Apple actually does have their own advertising business. You look in their stocks app and right there, there are some ads. I was floored. I was like, Steve Jobs is probably spinning. I mean, there's ads in Apple News and stuff like that. So, you know, they, I think uh, there's a lot of working theories about what they're going to allow next. This is going to be an ongoing thing. I think that like, creative ID, everyone's going to freak out. Then they're, you know, they're going to probably release a secondary campaign ID or whatever it is, but people are just going to like go nuts every time that, you know, there's a new dimension or just like a, any kernel of data that comes, comes out. So I think there's just going to be a lot of interruption to data. There's a lot of interruption to products. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be, you know, to, to be a Facebook or a Twitter or, you know, platform that, that their products, you know, ride on certain information. And then, you know, that engine team is probably just going nuts. So, you know, I, I can only imagine there, I think secondary uh, app stores too are getting uh, a lot more interesting for, um, you know, for, for game developers. You, you look at um, Facebook, Snaps Gaming, you know, just cloud gaming platforms in general. You look at, um, you know, people like Zynga now publishing on, on Switch. I think that, um, you know, I, I, want everyone to, I want everyone to win in this, but I hope that doesn't impact Apple negatively in terms of, uh, instead of the duopoly of Google and Apple, uh, you know, all of a sudden these secondary app stores are becoming more interesting of distribution uh, and, and is the juice worth the squeeze anymore of just focusing on two.
So, or is that even a good strategy anymore? I think that this is showing that like, we probably, everyone should have been testing and broadening their distribution channels a lot, lot sooner than this, so. Let's move on to the second question. So. Is that too controversial? <laughs> how is mobile marketing strategy expected to change as a result? Has marketing ever been a deterministic science? Is the emphasis on, of growth efforts expected to change? And does this change the hiring profile for mobile marketers? Well, I was going to say it does. I mean, also, I think for a while, mobile marketing, which synonymous UA, but in reality, mobile marketing groups have moved and shifted to becoming experts, not just in user acquisition, but cross-selling and upselling. And I think that there's a lot, there's a lot more athleticism in marketing uh, rather than, do you know SQL? Do you know this? Can you hit this number? Um, there, there's a lot more interest, at least for, for my side, to hire folks that have some creative background and uh, can think beyond just literally of like, if I hit this number, my job's done for the day. Like thinking about uh, all of these different problems, I think that it's, it's pressure testing the types of people that succeed in this, in this industry, in this business. Um, so I'm happy that it's kind of diversifying the talent pool and like, you know, specialties. I, I personally think that like, do you know what the uh, Stockholm syndrome is? It's like when um, people who are hijacked uh, become- in What round table is this? <laughs> I, I kind of think, think that marketing, like basically a lot of marketers suffered from this. They were completely infatuated and in love with some platforms that made their lives too easy. Now, the challenge was that they could not recreate it. And hence many, many large advertisers only worked with two platforms, Facebook and Google. It was just that easy, why not? Now, I think that marketing now becomes harder and the profile of a marketer probably should always have been someone that can figure out problems and challenges along the way and solve them and constantly figure out new methods, new ways, how to do things better and not just you know throw a campaign at a platform, boom, it hits your metrics, you have no idea how to recreate it and because that changes, that changes big time now. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to me, and, and it's funny, we, we told that to Apple when we talked to them multiple times, which is that this move in a way forces companies to have really super like smart data scientists to, to maximize the value of the measurement platform. It's almost like if, if anybody could do it before, almost anybody, right? But in Facebook made it easy. Today, if you want to maximize the value of the conversion value, you need to be more sophisticated, right? Or if you want to use more advanced uh, methodologies, you want to use incrementality testing, media mix modeling, like it's, it's, it's more advanced than what we used to do before. And, and I don't know if that was intention because it does create sort of this advantage for the bigger companies. It, it, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of challenges for the smaller guys. How are they going to figure it out? Uh, so that's sort of a weird side effect that you get from privacy, which is, it's almost like, you know, how in COVID, a lot of people lost their jobs, but then the wealthy got wealthier. So I'm wondering, is this going to be the same situation? Like all the houses went up, all people's stock went up, like Bitcoin, everything went up. And so, you know, people who had money are just way richer now. And it's, it's weird, right? I think that's very much true. But I actually, let me challenge the aspect that this is so extremely difficult. I would argue that going back to the fundamentals and doing some of the basic incrementality tests is actually not difficult. It's just that platforms like Facebook and Google have taught us that to, to look into their fancy dashboards and trust their graphs to go up and to the right. And they've been consistently um, 
uh, basically spoon feeding that looking at those dashboards is what it means to be data driven. I think I think on the contrary, um, I would go further and I'd say that like uh, I, I see a lot of folks in this field think that UA is just UA, right? Th th that is at best you work with Facebook and Google and maybe a handful of other very it's sort of b b bottom of the funnel folks, right? But in in my mind. Right, what we do for a food delivery app like like Grubhub, right, or for e-commerce apps, TV and digital video are just as much UA as UA is UA. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to mention too that you know, as much as yeah, we want to focus on the digital channels. If you've been buying connected TV, traditional TV, radio, podcast, you're not getting conversion value. So uh, you know, I think that you know incrementality testing uh you know that's that's what i've done at the, you know what we were doing at the last few companies it, that what that we when we weren't buying on facebook or google is how are we going to measure podcasts and how are we going to measure our tv buys and do we do you know like market incrementality do we do baseline you know then that, then it gets it then that gets into like the fun conversation so yeah i think kind of to to alex's point it's not pigeonholed to just digital channels. And in fact, if you've been doing some other channels that to date, you might you might be actually in a, a better position to absorb the fact that and the reality that the market's changing, you know, you probably have some foundational methodologies you can work with. And I think Jane, I think you're exactly right, exactly to this point, right? Like we are at a moment where a broad set of marketers will be forced to learn about things like like market incrementality. Um, I, 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 I really dream of a day when, when you say something like this and an audience of 100 people at a conference actually knows what it means, because on average, I don't think they do. Similarly, right, like I, I don't think an average marketer now that does UA understands what it means to, you know, do an on-off test or something like this, right, to understand whether this thing is working or even the sheer concept that looking at average cap is not the same thing as looking at an incremental cap, right? Like, this is forcing them to do it and i think that's that's just wonderful because that's going to make the efficiency of of spend for your average advertiser go up right either either good or dead basically that's how it's <laughs> splitting the brands in my mind not to yeah. be too, too controversial of course and i'm gonna try to touch the topic of incrementality without being salesy but uh, you know i think that digital only marketers or specifically mobile only marketers the only way they actually um, interface with even the term incrementality was either what the platforms were offering and you know what, whatever results you're going to get, they're going to be biased or retargeting. And with retargeting, it kind of made a lot of sense because you don't want to waste. You don't want to just spend for nothing, but um, that's pretty much going away, right? Yeah. I mean, I think incrementality got a dirty, uh, you know, just was a dirty word when I love Facebook as a partner, I love Google as a partner, but if you're a young marketer and that was your experience, I mean, I'm old enough that I've worked with incrementality for long enough, well before Facebook was even Facebook, but if that's been your experience, then I can imagine that your perception of incrementality is like it's witchcraft and it's bias and like, you know, <laughs> but the, you know, the reality is like well before those folks had incrementality as like kind of a just turn it on and it works and then just trust us it was like work that you had to work with a data team internally and it would be like you know it, it's uh 
It was what we all had to do to create our marketers. I want to take this a little bit further. I think we've regressed somewhat as marketers, right? Like switch back before the times of digital when you had physical stores around the, around the city and you were trying to figure out if billboards are actually making an impact on your sales. This The problem that we're currently looking at is solvable using those same means, except that introduction of digital has made us, if I may, lazy. <laughs> <laughs> right and and uh, th that created complacency complacency to trust the ones who we shouldn't trust which is you know the platforms they that make money off of us you know many many marketers experienced in a way the on off test when their budget ended towards the end of the month <laughs> but you know you don't see too many marketers going out to the press and saying well i i actually found out that 80% of my budget was redundant, like Uber or recently Airbnb, $650 million, kind of like, yeah. So, you know, it's not something everybody wants to go and say, wow, I found out so much of my spend was cannibalizing my own organic sales. It's not something to, you know, write home about. It's about incentive alignment, right? Like so much of our self-worth as marketers is in uh, um, the amount of budget that we manage. That's how we've been brought up. And this is across the entirety of the organizations. And if you're managing the Facebook channel, um, how in the world can you, even if you're an employee, come to your boss and be like, take away half of my budget. This is throughout all of your life. You thought of that number as how important you are to the world. Yeah, Alex, I think you nailed. Uh, because of that incentive or, or teams like paid social teams within growth teams always felt like, you know, the big man on campus. Um, like my team is not incentivized by how much they spend and everyone is the same playing field. And I think that uh, I'm happy that that is the case because I think that uh, when growth marketers are incentivized with how much they spend, they get away from the ultimate business goals because, you know, I love when my team will be like, hey, Janie, I can't actually this this money should not be spent in our channel uh we you know i'm going to work with the product team and figure out if we should reinvest that into promos and offers or merchandising or give it to another team you know like think as if they're the ceo of the company rather than uh you know i, I want to hit my monthly spend spend target and like how much i can gain from the system essentially um i've seen decisions made that negatively impact the, the business because of the incentivization being misaligned um, or being just purely based upon how much you spent and how much you drove. Um, so I'm happy that hopefully that can change. Um, yeah, we've, yeah, we've seen the dynamic a lot when it came to fraud and, and, and the fact that, you know, people didn't want to acknowledge that or you reported it to companies and it's just, it wasn't always a priority. It depends on who. And it kind of scares me if, if, the same incentives would, would still exist for, you know, just like what Alex said, like someone needs to admit and own up a mistake. And, and so that's going to inhibit organizations from actually making the change. So, you know, it will be interesting to see how, um, you know, how much people ad adopt that properly and, 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 you know, kind of take actions that may not benefit them uh, in the short term for the sake of the company. Because like, whenever we talk to customers about fraud, there was always the awkward conversation of like, uh, hey, Mr. VP of Marketing, half the stuff you bought is crap and you should stop immediately. And sometimes they wouldn't stop. We would even do audits for companies, like not even our own customers. And, yeah. and, and when the results are not good, like I would show up on the call and I would almost apologize because I knew it was very sensitive, but, but sometimes an action wouldn't be taken and I was shocked. So, yeah. 
By the way, since this is a thought leadership uh, roundtable, I think we should lead the trend that each marketer should be awarded 1 million bucks a year just to do a good job. <laughs> All four? <laughs> yeah, topic, doing my, we're doing our best. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I think on that on that topic, uh, the, the the incentives come from the top, right? Uh, and if if as a leader of the group, you kind of catch people doing the right thing, right? You find the tiniest of the examples where someone says, "Maybe my dollars aren't spent best, and maybe this campaign that we've been doing for a while should be stopped." And you kind of elevate them, and you show them off as the example of this is what our values are, I think you can change these mindsets, irrespective of what folks came into with their, I don't know, agency upbringing, about the size of their budget. If you kind of highlight these as the examples of the culture that you want to set, um, I think it works better. I, I'd probably go a little bit further and I'd say that like fraud makes it particularly embarrassing to admit that something like this is, is wrong. So I think, I think changing behavior because you feel like you've been defrauded feels really, really bad. Um, but there's also an in-between, which isn't fraud, but at the same time isn't incremental, which I think is the vast majority of the wasted spend. Like, yep. Is Facebook actively defrauding you by having their algorithms select the people who are going to buy anyway just a couple hours before they actually buy? No, that's their incentives. And they never coded their algorithm to be that. Right there, social dilemma, number two, except in the commercial setting, right? They didn't design for it to be bad, but it is. Uh, sorry, in like I could, I could tell you that in 100% of the conversations I had with marketers or CFOs, no one wants to save the waste. Everybody just wants to get the full value for what their budget is. And like we're working with a big uh, like fintech company, They're, they have a $200 million marketing budget. They know 50 million is completely wasted. They don't want to save it. They say, we want to unlock this value. It's a big That's difference. Right. That's right. Reallocate. Yep. Okay, moving to the next question. Uh, this time we're not going to uh, read the, the sub-bullet points. Uh, we're going to keep it, uh, you know, spicy. How will the future tech stack of mobile marketers look like? I think kind of what I, I mentioned earlier is like decision engines are going to be important internally. Uh, how you allocate your media, how you uh, uh, measure cohort behavior, like whether you bid on, you know, program. I think that just a lot of that is going to be uh, brought in in house and internally and be powered now internally rather than sitting with the DSP or sitting with, you know, your ad net partners or even sitting with Facebook and Twitter and, and the like. Um, it's a lot of, it's going to be a lot of work, but, you know, I think that's been the forcing hand for us, uh, at least on the digital channels. I think to Alex's point though, if you're, if you've been buying across different media channels for a while, I don't think that changes at a macro level. I just think that the more day-to-day -day and the optimizations and that kind of stuff is, is what you need to empower your team to make decisions on a daily basis that the company agrees upon the methodology and how you arrive at you know what's contributing, what's incremental, what's not. Um, so I think from a tech stack perspective, it's more how do you empower your team that used to be, they rely too heavily on a Facebook or they rely too heavily on a Google to make to make those decisions for them. I wholeheartedly agree. I'd go further and I'd say that this change is making the, the, the average marketer care about the overall business more. Uh, and, and 
I, I would guess that if we fast forward, I don't know, three, five years out, an average marketer will be much better able to answer, how do you know that this is working? That what you're doing every day is actually working. And they will see their job as answering that question as opposed to being the master of, of structuring campaigns, for example, campaign manager, right? Um, uh, they become masters of experimentation because that will be the only way to survive. Someone recently asked me, um, I'm revealing something. Someone recently asked me, why shouldn't Apple just buy Singular? I thought it would be actually a fantastic idea. Because, <laughs> like, again, this is completely not rehearsed, but so first of all, we need visualization. Apple didn't really do any job. Um, and right now you guys need to just, you know, trust whatever you see on the networks and hope that the network give you the postbacks uh, and like, hope that it all works uh, somehow. Um, let's face it, SKN network is not great, but it is what it is. Just that's the reality we now live with. Um, I think that opt-in rates are good for modeling again, but just as another data points uh, for iOS creative testing right now, I have no idea how you're going to do it. Like what split campaigns, campaign IDs, something like that. So again, it, it, like this period does give opportunity for new tools, new platforms, new stuff. Um, I was kind of like, you know, uh, like not, not bashing any of the other attribution companies, but I think that singular was Pretty much in a fantastic position when this thing came out, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that in a way, um, you know, we've we've always kind of stayed away from bets on aggressive, um, you know, sort of device graphs or like using a lot of third-party data. Like the bet was that a lot of it is going to go away, and 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 you know, we've had customers over the years who wanted device graphs and capabilities like that. So I think that that kind of paid off. Um, um, you know, I I do think the tech stack, in many ways, what they did is going to complicate things. I don't really think it's going to simplify things because um, you know, SK Network is a beast right now. It's really hard to debug as well. Like I've been in the trenches with our customers and kind of sucks and like people trying to get a single post back and it's frustrating. And so doing it at scale and you see in, in this, in the, you know, MAP Slack or MDM people are like, did anyone get a conversion value with, with, with the publisher name? Like, yeah. And, you know, people don't understand the privacy threshold. So I think there's a lot of challenges there. Um, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be part of um, a set of signals we're going to use. I do think IDFA and probabilistic, uh, sorry, deterministic is still going to be there uh, because we're going to use it for modeling and maybe more. Um, I think that SK network is definitely going to be powerful because it just captures everything. So you can't ignore that signal. It's like too much of a, you know, it's good enough. It's not great, but it's good enough for you to use it. And, and so I think people will just use it. Um, the creative analysis, you know, it's interesting. Uh, what platforms like Facebook and Google do is they basically, or at least Facebook and Snap and others, they own the assignment of campaign IDs. So they'll basically say, I'll try and, and reduce the amount of campaigns I'm giving you. And, in, and I'll use the other 190 identifiers that I have for choosing what I want to, what permutations I want. One of them will be creatives. So I think the creative analysis will, will exist um, and, and, and people will use it based on the platforms and what they do. Um, but I absolutely agree that like, you know, internally in the company the, I call this uh, effort, the future of measurement. And I basically told my team that, you know, all platforms, including Singular in this new age, just need to reinvent themselves in many ways. Right. And, and some of the old technology, basically all, the funny thing is all the, all of the old technology we have is still used, but now there's more complexity, right. Which is kind of annoying. It's like, I was 14 kind of rewrote our roadmap when it came out. 
but it's not like we can shut down any of the old stuff. So, so it is getting more complicated. Um, and yeah, I just think the tech stack will, will have to take care of a lot of aspects from like your old IDFA stuff because you still need the signal, the SKA network stuff, and then more advanced solutions like you know predictive LTV, like using SKA network properly and um, obviously incrementality. I know a lot of people talk about media mix modeling. I still have some questions in my mind, which is how, um, you know, I've, I've seen like, we have some customers that, that do, they have a massive team of data scientists and they do media mix modeling internally or they use a vendor that does that as services. And you're talking about, you know, reports that you get once a month and there's a ton of analysts working on it. And I'm wondering like, can some, is it real to make it real time hourly or is it bullshit or you start making up the number? And that's some of these technologies, right? They may have some limitations. They're not gonna be as good as what you used to have as well. So that's kind of what I'm wondering. And that's where I'm, I'm wondering, is the technology ready to get there yet or not? I could say about modeling, because obviously it's something that's close to what we do, but not really what we do. Uh, media mix modeling actually doesn't really change because you do need um, a ton of data. Like the more the merrier, 12 months usually is the, like the minimum. You need um, external data, whether if it's weather, politics, uh, economics, whatever might have affected your own marketing activities, competitor information and so on. And then you're basically triangulating what worked on a quite macro level. It's really good when you are running on multiple platforms or multiple mediums, sorry. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, if you're selling something that is um, offline in a store, it's fantastic. I would say for digital first, heavily performance oriented marketers, Media Mix is not really uh, so helpful. It's not bad. And like, in my opinion, it's like, it's never about, you know, um, real-time attribution versus media mix versus incrementality testing. It's this plus this plus this, depending on your use case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Gotti, I, I hit you up about media mix modeling. I, so it's macro. It's like when I do planning, like I have to have some semblance to my finance team. Where's your money gonna go? And you know, a lot of that is like, is it peer set based? Is it based upon you know some comps? Like this is where how they spend their money. This is what we've done in the past. Uh, when we change things up, like it's more a, it's more for from my perspective, more of like a planning uh, tool. I wouldn't expect my media my team to optimize on media mix modeling every day. Like that to me is not is not the the use case there. I think similar like when we mentioned retargeting. A lot of people using incrementality for retargeting because that's that warrants it. I think that you know it's a, there's a time and a place for all these things like incrementality, media mix modeling, PLTV, you know, deterministic. Still, there's all of these things now are different levers that we all have to pull. And so, yeah. I had to be way more sophisticated in terms of what I use, when I use it, and why I use it versus I used to just say, okay, well, it's Singular's MMP. That's what we use, and we use last click, and like you know, all right, I can go to bed now. It's well, I'm going to use this methodology to plan. I'm using this to help to help instruct my team where what you know what the goals are. You know uh, uh, how our on a weekly or monthly basis how our how our media is going to be shifting, and then I expect my team to be using these tools on a daily basis to make business decisions. It's like everything becomes just a little bit different uh, of yep. flavor. 
I, I am a radical on this topic. Please forgive me in advance for uh, uh, the radicalism that's about to follow. I'm a big non-believer in the context, context uh, oh, in the concept of media mix uh, modeling at all. I don't think it's actionable. I don't think that it, um, it can be good irrespective of the amount of marketing spend that you actually put in for anything but the most transactional of the businesses. Um, I'm a believer in uh, uh, doing, doing two things. One is incrementality testing to understand the impact of um, uh, your additional investments in individual channels in the context of the rest being held constant and then tactical um, measurement to try to make the campaigns that you have and the channels that you have more effective within, within the specific context. Let me give you concrete examples. Um, let's look at a business like Grubhub where uh, you're dealing with food delivery. It's a fairly impulse purchase, right? It's not like you consider a purchase of uh, uh, you, you, you know, food delivery for months before you do it like you would with you know, a mattress or a car. So that simplifies the story, but still, right? Uh, there's a night when you're, you know, working late, you're typing food delivery on Google, and you're about to click on one of those search results. The one that you click on is determined by your previous impression of those brands, right? So you need to be able to somehow track that the user has seen, you know, a billboard or a TV ad, or maybe something on Facebook about your brand, and that's why they're clicking there, right? So um, I, I, the, the way I think about this is, um, uh, is effectively looking at each lever independently and saying, what will happen if that lever goes either from its current position to a little bit more or a little bit less, or from zero to, to some position? You can do this with um, upper funnel, with TV or digital video or, or billboards. You can do this with lower funnel. And then based upon these individual incrementality tests, you, you know your incremental cap and your incremental LTV at the level of spend that you're at with each of the channels. And then based upon that knowledge, you can fill the buckets based upon ROAS. Fill the buckets of spend based upon ROAS and based upon these, these incremental thresholds. Uh, if you approach it that way, you will be able to capture effectively the totality of second order effects without guessing. And to me, media mix modeling is um, one error multiplied by another, multiplied by another. Uh, and no matter how hard you try to do this, and no matter how much you spend, Right, Grubhub spends hundreds of billions on advertising. It is still not enough. <laughs> um, so that's the, the, the that's the how much do you spend per channel question, and then how do you tactically optimize? Uh, this to me is is kind of channel specific, right? With TV, you can look at you know the immediate traffic that you see on your site after after each ad run, and based on that, you can pick a better creative. You can find similar techniques like this for each of the channels to be able to. Um, effectively be better tomorrow than you were yesterday. And that's the things that you look at on a day-to-day -day basis, not the incremental CACs and incremental LTVs. These tests, you don't need to rerun all the time. By the way, there's the reason why the brand world call campaigns tests, because everything you are doing is testing. Everything you're doing is basically a change because we don't have a constant. We, like The flow of time keeps moving forward. We can go into philosophy, by the way, if you want. I'm really into time travel. Um, but uh, yeah, everything you are doing is constantly testing and indeed trying to do better. On the other hand, I would say like we do have a benefit when it comes to data and attribution and real-time attribution. If you're spending fuckloads of money, pardon my French, and the red banner works better than the blue banner, you don't need any sophistication other than last touch attribution to tell you 
That's one's better. Maybe a question to you guys. Like um, for years, it felt like last click was really the predominant method. And it's also partly because Facebook, that's the only signal they gave to MMPs. I mean, in some cases they give us more signals, but, but part of it is that, right? Like there wasn't, even if you wanted to do MTA, you couldn't really even get all the touch points. And then what's the point? Spending so much money on Facebook and Google. Um, where do you think MTA will go now with this change? Is it completely dead in mobile or like, is, it, is there still even hope for MTA? I hope it dies. It's snake oil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did MTA when I, back in my desktop years and it, it was like, I used to say, like, it's just like showing a banana on a slide. Like, it's, it's, there's no, you know, it was like, it'd be like, oh, we take 30% from this touch and we take, you know, just arbitrary numbers that ended up adding more noise than, you know, it basically, it was the lesser evil was just last click um, because MTA was so off, but also no one could agree upon what the, you know, we couldn't ever settle on what what it should be, should be time decay, should, you know, it just got way too complicated. And so we all just settled on like, last click, we're moving on, let's figure out other business problems. And moving on to our next question, how can mobile marketers prepare? <laughs> I mean, start caring about the business person for us, I'd say, right? Start caring about what the CEO is caring about, right? <laughs> not, not how can you, um, uh, kind of check a box, but how can you actually grow the business? And that will make you think about what what's effective, what what dollars are actually producing results, right? Like taking a higher vantage point, I think will cause the right questions to pop up. Yeah, I, well, I think you have to empower your team to be, you know, like mm -hmm. you have to have those those team members make those calls or, or be more transparent about that, or even just be, feel more psychological safety around being like, Hey, I, I don't think we could, we should spend this. Like I'm seeing, you know, these signals, uh, organics are dipping, you know, whatever it is. But, um, I think, you know, so that's, that's like one thing. And I, I agree, like, first of all, I don't think you should be in growth leadership if you don't uh, align with your CEO or your CFO or your C-suite in general on business goals. Uh, I think it's a dangerous, <laughs> that would be a dangerous person in that kind of role that's spending money. Um, and I also think it's more, it's, it is critical to align with like your life cycle management team and uh, not just, you know, you're not going to be forcing spend anymore into channels just for user acquisition. And your data is going to be way more stable too on existing users now too. So there's like, there's this level two of like forcing function of groups that may have never talked to each other before or marketing silos having to come together and be a little bit more aligned, uh, but also feel like it's a lever, you know, like your team can be enabled to reach out or be part of the LCM, you know, levers to pull. So, um, you know, I think that it's it, gone are the days that you have your paid social team, you have your paid search team and you know, everyone's, you know, to Alex's point, everyone's basically just trying to see who can spend the most and, you know, be, you know, get the glory. And obviously, if you have not yet figured out a day one conversion value, you should. Yeah, I guess uh, as an extension of that, my, my tip would be, and maybe it's for mobile marketers or the leaders is um, to take the time to learn because there's been a lot of changes and I've seen that it's overwhelming people. And, and for the leaders is enable your people to learn, find resources, help them through that transition, 
um, because you know there's a lot of new terminology now, and like you know maybe people shockingly may not even know what a convergent value is yet, right? Or all the different terms. I mean, it's a complex change. So um, whatever you can do to make sure you're up to speed quickly and you know don't keep waiting, uh, that, that's uh, maybe an obvious. But for me, it's something I've noticed. Gary, maybe an uh, off-topic question, not off-topic, but uh, like another MMP ran a survey and showed that only a small percent of customers actually even knew what the hell is going on. Uh, what percent of singular customers do you think are kind of like really knowing what's going on? Um, hopefully by now, a lot of them, because I mean, it's pretty late. <laughs> Uh, but, but I mean, early on, uh, early on, yeah, we still were surprised. A lot of folks were not in it yet, but you know, there's just so much anticipation. I also remember that there was, so in June, uh, was it June 22nd, I think when Apple first announced it, WWDC, and then there was so much talk. And then around September, October, everybody got tired of talking about it. Like suddenly there wasn't so much talk about it. Everybody was just like, yeah, get it on with, and then it picked back up when people realize it's going to come in iOS 14 point something and then 14.5. Um, so um, I think I want to believe by now, most folks have, have done uh, the work necessary. I can't say everybody, but you know, we've been so active pumping content to people, hopefully not spamming them, but at least producing stuff so that they, you know, they pick up and, and they learn about this. Um, so yeah, I, I want to believe it's in a, in a better sh shape. And I mean, I could probably have a better, answer from the data, but it, um, I think almost all of our customers are now adopting models or like on the way to do that. There's some that have delays because their dev team is super big and it took time to prioritize. And so they don't even have changes done yet, but most part they're moving um, uh, quickly. But, you know, folks like, you know, Janie and her team and like the, our sophisticated customers are like way ahead of other people. You can, Aww, it's interesting to actually you. see some people make, yeah, no, I mean, you guys are just running super fast and thinking about problems way ahead of everybody. Uh, we also had a webinar with, with Rovio and they did some really cool things. And I think there's going to be some advantage for these companies for a while until everybody catches up. So that, that would be pretty interesting to see. Danny, I don't know if you agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, I'd like to agree on that. I think uh, <laughs> I used to joke like, you know, it's, it's no secret that EA is be, was behind in mobile. I don't think we are anymore uh, for a lot of reasons, but uh, we had the luxury of not having to reverse engineer anything that was dependent on IDFA, like, because we hadn't really built much automation when I joined, you know? So <laughs> we didn't have to spend the time to figure out how we were gonna get that, those tools internally to like function anymore. So we just kind of went straight into like, okay, let, what are we gonna do singular? What are we gonna do here? And like, kind of just went straight into like, solution mode instead of like, all right, we got to fix all this stuff and like reverse engineer all this stuff. So I'm happy that we kind of got a jump start on that. And um, I love that my team, yeah, just a plug. I love that my team is open to just pretty much any testing or any type of methodology and any kind of thinking to, to just validate. Like we don't have strong opinions about it should be this and it can't be that. Um, and I think that, you know, we gotta, we gotta shake shit up, you know? You're coming in with a bias of like, this should end this way, that's not a real test. Yeah, Gary, I must say, I, I'm pretty grateful for not just how much Singular did when it came uh, to uh, like uh, IDFA deprecation and the content you guys pushed, you got your hands dirty. 
like you guys are a plus 200 people uh, company by now you never made promises you couldn't keep you never said no apple will do this like other people did um no you guys got in there fairly quickly you delivered a lot of really informative content and analyzed stuff and this is what you actually see and so on and uh, cut through so much of industry bullshit. so good job thank you you're making me blush um I still, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, there's one thing that that's, that's right now is sort of uh, open and I'm curious what people think, uh, you know, certain attribution vendors, for example, they, they kind of do fingerprinting by default and we're getting a lot of heat right now from folks in the industry like Ed Networks telling us like, oh, why don't you just enable it by default? And we're like, we don't really don't think that's what Apple wanted to do. And so that's like literally a bifurcation in the M&P space where you know, and, and surprisingly, Bench and Kachava, who both had massive data businesses, are actually on the side where Singular is, which is like, yeah, we're not going to do fingerprinting. And I see, you know, just AppSlayer by default doing that. So I don't know. I'm curious where it's going to go. I think either Apple's not going to care and then everybody's going to do it or they actually act and then people stop doing it. I'm curious what you guys think. That's just one thing that I'm, I'm a bit confused about, to be honest. We yeah. err on, on being conservative. So we are taking the... The policy to the T, uh, to the nth degree of no fingerprinting, like, you know, we do not have it enabled through singular, but um, yeah, there's plenty of uh, competitors out there that are leveraging it. There's plenty, there's MMPs, yes, that have it by default that they're kind of riding and dying on that. But um, uh, I think it's up to Apple to actually make an example of some of them. If, 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 the, if it's real or otherwise, yeah, people are just going to go back to the ways or be like, well, if Apple's not serious about enforcing this, then we're just gonna, you know, do do us at this point. So um I think all eyes on Apple. It's in Apple's court. I think it's the balls in Apple's court now to develop what they want to do about it. They're pretty public, you know, all these companies are public about what they're doing. There's an edge yeah, to be had. And my guess is that there will be folks who want to use that edge for as long as it possibly exists. Uh, and, and, and it's kind of like day traders, right? Uh, they, they know that they're playing with fire, but uh, they want to squeeze every last piece of margin. So interesting, today, uh, the Apple versus Fortnite lawsuit started. Mm -hmm. Apple really showed the world they're not playing around. And um, one of the MMPs SDKs got rejected, um, what was it, like two weeks ago? And they had to immediately, very quickly, release a new SDK. I wouldn't want to go to my entire customer base and say, well, you remember this SDK you just updated, which is always a nightmare to get your teams to do. We need you to do another update right now because your app is going to get rejected. Uh, I don't think Apple really is playing around. We've seen it. We've seen it with the CAID, the China advertising mm -hmm. identifiers. Yeah. Apple kicks out companies left and right because Apple, and again, even Tim Cook actually commented about ATT. This is on their flag. If you've seen the video they released after the day of the release, it was like yeah, yeah. Apple privacy, basically telling the users, don't opt in. Um, yeah, it was very biased. We see that, God forbid, <laughs> advertisers get the data. Yes. Right? It was oh like god. all the worst possible people to get your data, advertisers. <laughs> like, oh my god. I think conservative um, works. Conservative works uh, to the long run. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but it's exactly it's just this balance. How do we how do we manage expectations with customers? And I've literally seen 
people see it as a competitive advantage for them. It's like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do fingerprinting. I'll be better than others. And I mean, it's a bit, it's, it's cheating. Like you said, Alex, it's just like, it's unfair. It is an advantage. And, and also, you know, um, Daniel, let me ask you this. There could come a day where if Apple does nothing, you lose patience, right? And you say, why am I the only one? Or you're not the only one. All of our bigger yeah. customers choose to be safe, but you may lose patience and say enough, right? Like, why am I not doing it if everybody else is doing it? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> I look at it this way, uh, are, is, my, is my team better served expelling a bunch of energy optimizing the HTT prompt? Is, are they expelling trying to figure out you know, how to get around Apple's policy or is it trying to help build our brand? So it doesn't matter who's encroaching on us that you know, Madden, FIFA, all of these brands are you know, above and beyond better. You know, there's some that goodwill, there's that brand equity and to me, I think it's easy to get distracted in some of those activities, but it's not, the juice is not worth the squeeze, in my opinion, to do a lot of those things when you take into account the bigger picture uh, and the long-term, like I'd, I'd perf much prefer to have my team working on long-term solutions than trying to hack their way through short-term things that could be here for a month, could be here till next week. Uh, so to me, it's just noise and, and, I might get annoyed that, you know, some people are cheating or cutting the line, you know, but you're always going to have those kinds of people or, you know, companies in the industry that, uh, uh, you know, like to take that edge. But I think, um, I like to think that, um, if you show that you can be competitive in the market and do good by the, by the users and do good by the industry and, um, everyone, everyone can win in the industry. It does, it's not like you're stealing someone's lunch. Um, so I, I have to, I have to, trust that um, there's good companies out there and growth people that feel the same way and that, you know, we will be the majority. We have time for our bonus question. So we've been talking a lot about Apple. Then the question, will Google do the same? I, I have a theory about it. Um, in, What's your in theory, Gotti? So my theory is as follows, uh, and it's just internal discussions. Uh, I think they will, uh, I think they will remove the GID. But I think they'll keep the referrer mechanism. Um, and I think what will enable them is it's still going to enable relatively healthy, maybe standard and user acquisition flows. It's not going to destruct everything. But by removing GAID, they could say, hey, we people can't really build device graphs just based on just seeing touch points from users. And it's only like that when someone you know goes from one app to another. I think that's kind of a Google way to do that. I mean, if you think about it, even the Google Play Refer is something Apple never had. So I think they wouldn't necessarily shut down that mechanism, but they may deprecate GAID. Um, I think though that on timing, my guess is they're not gonna do it any time in anywhere in the next two years because first um, they have the third party cookie situation going on, right? Where there's a lot going on and they they have done a bunch of like uh, turtle dove and what's the other thing? Uh, block, block report, block, yeah. yeah. So they're like kind of fighting a big battle there, in my opinion, and um, and 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 so why also getting to the mess of removing GID all at the same time, and also I think they're kind of waiting and seeing where Apple lands out, right? Like what what happens with with iOS and where does it stabilize, and maybe it'll just learn from that and build something on top of that. So my guess is we have a bit over time. I don't think it's going to happen next week, but I also you know it's not going to happen. It will happen at some point. 
and my hope is that they'll keep some of these mechanisms because I think that's the balance they'll find. And they kind of hinted that they're not going to be as aggressive as Apple. Um, that's my guess. I've done a historical chronology recently about identifiers because um, I was writing a white paper um, and then it was always the same pattern. Uh, Apple does something and talking about mobile. Apple does something, Google does something. Apple does something, Google does something. And so my theory, first of all, super interesting what you said about like deprecating GAD, but keeping referral actually kind of makes a lot of sense because they could say privacy, but measurement. And um, obviously Google's interests are not the same as Apple. They make their money on advertising. Now, my theory when it comes to timeline is announcement during this summer, but execution end of 2022, or maybe even winter of 23. Google usually gave sufficient time for the market to prepare. We also see the same with Chrome cookies. Uh, everybody else already killed it. Um, Google said, oh, you have until June of this year for the sandbox solution stuff, so. Uh, I'll be a little bit contrarian and I'll, I'll, I'll think about the incentives for the companies involved in their brands. Sure, we can point to examples where Google has taken actions that seemingly are pro-privacy. But in reality, if we look at third-party cookie deprecation, this was not a pro-privacy move. This was a monopolistic move to take more share into their own network, right? Uh, damaging smaller publishers because these small publishers now are much weaker at being able to prove to advertisers that, that, that their ads are actually having an effect. And Google is as strong, right? So uh, I think Google understands their incentives extremely well. I think their brand does not stand for privacy. I think they will do the absolute bare minimum. I think if they are not forced by the rest of the world to take this move, they will take no move at all. And if they are, they will do some small step in that direction. I, Gary, I think, I think your hypothesis is a solid one of a, of a small step in that direction. But uh, I don't think Google, Google has any incentives to move in that direction on their own. Yeah, I'm a flavor of every, I mean, I don't want to agree with all of you, but um... I think Apple will do something of the vein of privacy because I feel like that, or sorry, Apple, Google will do this something similar just because they they tend to to try to one up each other uh, in in the app store market. But I think, as everyone said, I don't think it'll be this uh, same execution as Apple. Um, I think publicly or just like the perception will be that it's privacy based. I don't know what that looks like. I mean, they they won't negatively impact their ad business, which is a lot more to lose than Apple ever had. So I think it's, I would bet on on that if there were odds on like, uh, they will take into consideration their ads business above all in that decision-making process. Whereas I don't think Apple did uh, uh, because of the way that Apple structure is structured in the in the decision makers that, that came up with this policy. Um, so I, I have to believe that Google will take the ecosystem more into account and be a little bit more responsible for, um, disruption in the market and and you know trying to make sure that average the advertiser and supply side are um are just as equal as user privacy rights in terms of making sure that businesses don't suffer or die die off or small businesses uh because of a decision i'd like to believe that so i would believe that if, if google could by the way they would use facial detection for attribution yes. Um, and right. now there is another dimension where Apple is now offering uh, what is it like the face ID for uh, for for attribution. Uh, again, if no one would stop Google, I would agree that would basically they have no reason why not to. And that's kind of like the point. I think that there is a 
Again, either we call it the market or we call it legislation or we call it consumers, but Google has no incentive to do this if no one is pressing them. Same was for Chrome. Chrome, basically, you know, a Firefox, no cookies for a long time. Uh, Apple ITS, um, 2017. Google Chrome, 21. They didn't do it for privacy. No, no, for sure. They did it they for- They did it to take share. External- as evil as it gets. Yeah. But come on, Google, um, Apple search ads now recently um, has, a, they have a new placement. Um, what is it? Sponsored apps. Yeah. And I guarantee this will have amazing uh, return on advertising spend. I think, I think as a, <laughs> I think I've become soft as a mother, uh, where I, I like to think about morality and just a little, I, I think a little bit more about the legacy I, le I will leave behind at this point. Not that I'm, you know, hopefully I'm not too old, but um, I would be way more motivated if I felt like a lot of this wasn't bullshit. Like if it was like the industry is like, we are going to make a privacy safe, not that it hasn't been in the past, but like that it's the Apple, Google, like we all have this greater good for the user that feels genuine and is actually genuine rather than feeling it, it, everyone kind of talks behind, behind each other's backs about not like, but like snarky comments about why Apple's doing this, snarky comments about what, why Google's this. And I think that that's, it's, it's doing a disservice to the actual like privacy. Like that is actually a very valid and honorable thing to, to try to do, but these actions and the decision-making is, is muddying kind of why we should do it. And it's making it seem like it's super cheap and just like, it, it's all for show. And I think that that's, what's really hard for me to get. It's like saying that, you know, you're going to be a green company in the next two years. And then, you know, having a bunch of factories that just burn gas and you, you know, you have, you know, your CEOs flying on private jets and, you know, it's like kind of like that. It's like, if you're all in, go all in. Uh, but don't, don't make these like half-ass actions. And then in fact, do it as a way to just get gain on the back end and hurt a bunch of people and then also kind of like lie to users like to me it just i don't it doesn't sit well with me look if you've seen the apple privacy ad where you know the man on the bus is saying um speaking yeah. about divorce lawyers and so on. let's face it like our companies we've seen a lot of data have we ever done anything like this <laughs> no I would say those who wanted to do that, who wanted to figure out, I don't know, my dog groomer, they could do that. They could figure out a way, even in a post-privacy world. Um, I think as an industry, we've never been deceptive to the users. We've never abused user privacy to, I don't know, stock ex-partners. But that's kind of like, you know, the, the I think this like message of privacy sells devices um, sells consumers trust. So maybe that's why we're a little bit, or at least I'm a little bit cynical about the topic though. Again, I get it. I understand it. You may As also be a bit I, more exposed to the details, right? Like, I don't know what the average consumer knows about all this stuff. And I mean, are they exposed to the fact that it's really Apple maybe making moves against Facebook along the way, or maybe they just think, Oh, Apple's protecting me. I love it. You know, 
Let me throw out something potentially controversial. We're talking about privacy as the motivator, but if you rewind, say, 12 months back, and remember the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, just ask yourself how that ended with so much push on Facebook to change and so many companies choosing to kind of withdraw their support. That ended with a whimper. And I'm afraid that that is because incentives of the participants are what they are. Yeah, I mean, transparently, I remember, I remember that. And I remember saying, I don't agree with pulling money because it's, it's a half-assed approach. Like if we're gonna be like, got to be true to if we want to stop hate it's not with just making this grandiose gesture of we're going to stop spending on facebook for a month and then because of right. business reasons we're going to be back online like that to me is just <laughs> i could i didn't feel good about that so i was like look it's either we never spend on any platform whatsoever that's like basically any platform out there like just never do it uh or we realize that like that is not the gesture to actually make impact on this greater issue and uh, you know i think that yeah i think alex looks like a perfect draw an analogy to like kind of the this privacy and and the gesture that's being made versus like kind of the half-assedness of the stop hate movement um and it dying and kind of it, it's upsetting like there were some committees being ma made but like nothing really happened about that you know so yeah the same thing like it, it makes us look like jokers like you know we gotta gotta be serious you know gotta be all in gotta be 100 like, like <laughs> you know put online um everybody i think we have reached the end of our round table so i would like to thank everybody for participating it was really fun by the way, I always cut this uh, round table at the end for a couple of shorts. One of them is called the controversial short. We have enough material for that. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Um, ciao. Yeah, Mauer, thank you so much for organizing this. Thanks. It's good to see Thanks you. Thanks so much, you guys. Yeah. Super uh, fun. Thank you.